Welcome to this podcast from the National Institute for Health and Care Research, the NIHR. This episode is about leadership in surgery. The NHS is paying increasing attention to leadership within clinical teams, recognising that good leadership is at the heart of quality and safety within healthcare organisations. Surgical leaders need to develop effective teams. They have to understand the needs of patients and inspire and manage their team to meet those needs. Leadership training can be delivered in different ways, and it's not clear which approaches work best. Today, we're discussing a study that teased out the elements of successful training. My name is Helen Saul, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the NIHR Evidence website. I have two guests with me today, and I'll let you introduce yourselves. Welcome, first of all, to the author of the study, Amy. Hello, I'm Amy Grove, and I'm a professor at Warwick Medical School, the University of Warwick. So I'm a professor of implementation scientist but also a chartered psychologist. Thank you. And Peter? I'm um, Peter Hutchinson. I'm Director of Clinical Research at the Royal College of Surgeons of England and Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Cambridge. Thank you. So, to set the scene, Peter, why is leadership training important for surgeons? I think it's what importance one word, but essential is another word. I, I think it's something that's absolutely critical in terms of your development of a surgeon throughout your career from becoming a junior surgeon right through to senior consultant level. Why is the training important? I think some people are quite good at it. It's slightly innate to them. They're born with it. But in others, there's no doubt that it's a skill that can be improved with training. And why, why do we need to do it? It's about bringing everybody together, leading the team, successful teamwork, and everybody being cohesive for the benefit of patients. Thank you. And Amy, what makes a good surgical leader? So from my point of view, what makes a good leader in surgery is somebody who is acceptable to the surgical community. And what does that mean? Well, Two things, really. It's somebody who has integrity, and I mean personal integrity, two other surgeons, but also that they have technical surgical skills that are valued by people that work in surgery. So to be a leader, people need to know and see good leadership practice. What prompted you to conduct your study? What did you want to achieve? So this study we're talking about today is funded by the NIHR, and it's looking at how we can advance leadership within surgery in particular. So we conducted a realist review, which is looking at all the evidence published about surgery and also about leadership. And I conducted this review because the NHS, our healthcare systems, they give significant investment into leadership and surgical leadership training. And I was interested in seeing if we could understand, can we capture that return on investment? How do we know that what we're doing works? And I was also interested in understanding why we don't treat leadership development like any other intervention in health and social care services, where we're examining whether it works. Is it clinically effective? And we're also examining, is it cost effective? Does it offer value to the patients that we treat? That was the basis of the study that I took. Your analysis included 33 studies. From this, what did you find to be the essential 
elements, those pillars of successful leadership training? So what we found in performing our review of the published literature were three things that were effective for leadership development. One of them is feedback. So how we give and receive feedback effectively. We've also got the characteristics of leadership and how it needs to be tailored to people, to individuals, and also the atmosphere in which leadership is delivered. Okay, so if we start with the first pillar, then staff feedback, um, how can surgeons provide good quality constructive feedback? So we found evidence to suggest that surgeons can provide constructive and good quality feedback to support leadership in a few different ways. So the first one is that it's timely. So feedback needs to be given very close to an event, and that might be a technical event or a leadership event. As long as the feedback is aligned to when that event happens, it's more effective. Feedback needs to be given on multiple occasions. So we're repeating the message consistently to people we're feeding back to. For feedback to be effective, it needs to be given by a trusted and respected source. The person giving the feedback and receiving the feedback needs to view the other person as a credible person who has integrity within the field. Interestingly, we found that negative feedback, when somebody's done something wrong, this needs to be delivered in private. And I think that often doesn't happen in the NHS. When we think about things like trauma meetings, negative feedback takes place in an open forum. And also seniority is important, giving and receiving feedback. So if you're giving feedback from a senior to a junior or peer to peer, so you imagine two consultants, that feedback can be given openly um, and directly. But when we're talking from a junior to a senior, it's more effective to give feedback anonymously, which is interesting. And I think talks to the hierarchy that we have within surgical training. Thank you. Peter, um, how much of what Amy has outlined happens in surgical practice and where would you see that we could make improvements? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the answer to that is it's variable. If you look at feedback, I guess we can divide that into two types in practice. The first would be what we would call formal feedback, and there are ways by which surgical trainees and consultants are assessed. So the trainees have their multi-source feedback, procedure-based assessments, clinical-based assessments, 360-degree appraisals. But I thought what Amy said was really important about the timeliness of this. And often, perhaps more informal feedback immediately after an event is probably more valuable. And that's probably something we could do more of. Perhaps you could argue it should be done at the end of every operation or every clinic interaction. And I think what's going to be helpful about progressing training is the way we do that. So how important is the feedback in a, in a constructive manner? That's It's how we give the feedback, and and that can be taught. It's no good being very critical of people saying that was rubbish, that was poor, particularly in a public forum. And, and I, I absolutely appreciate Amy's findings that these things are best done in private. But there are good ways and bad ways to give feedback. And a good way to give feedback is to is to start by asking the other person what they thought was good. So that's something that we're trying to introduce. You know, what went well about that? And then 
what would you do differently next time? I think there's very positive ways of doing that. And that is beginning to be taught. It's taught through uh, mentoring courses. It's very much part of the ATLS ethos of, of feedback. So we need to consider both the timing. I agree it should be done soon after an event. We need to look at the environment. It is best done in an open forum, but there will be times when it's better done confidentiality. But I think the way that you phrase feedback can be really, really important in, in making it a positive experience, not just for the person receiving the feedback, but also uh, the person giving the feedback. Amy, there was also something about um, that feedback needed to be repeated. Um, I think the importance of repeating feedback is that you are repeating a consistent message. When, as Peter mentioned, trainees, for example, when they're assessed, it may be that they it's a long period of time between assessment or they may have even rotated through different hospitals and they get inconsistent messaging and inconsistent approaches to feedback. So having feedback that happens timely, but also repeated across training is more effective in terms of when we're thinking about leadership development. Peter, I'm wondering whether you have any examples from your own career of constructive feedback, either that you've given or received. Um, yeah, I mean, we've had a, a, a recent example of an operation that that could have been done slightly differently, and I, I think that was that was a recent example where the operation could be performed different ways. I had a personal view that it should be performed one way. The trainee thought it could be performed the other. I mean, both were acceptable, but, you know, I had my views, the trainee had their views. But I think by adopting this approach of, of you know, what are the options? That's the first thing to say. And then why did you go with that option? Have you considered this option? It's the way you phrase it, but it's really important to respect their views and not feel make people feel belittled in any way, because I think that cannot confidence. You know, what we do is tough. It, it's a privilege to be able to operate on patients. It's not always easy. We need to get it right. But when people are learning, it, you need to nurture them and look after them. We all have complications, but help them deal with them and move on. Okay. Um, the second pillar of good leadership training came down to the personal characteristics of surgical leads, their, their mindset and their approach to training. So, Amy, what did you find makes someone amenable to leadership training? So when we think about personal characteristics, we were exploring the aspects that are amenable. You know, people are different and we can't expect different personalities to behave the same. Um, and I don't think we should expect that of leadership training either. We should embrace the difference of different types of surgeons. So what would be effective for me in terms of my leadership development and what would be effective for Peter, for his, they will be different. So in our review, we found that leadership interventions were shown to be more effective when they could be tailored and customised to different types of surgeons. So here we're talking about different specialties, but also generational differences, what works for more senior surgeons, what works for more junior surgeons. And it's also important to conceptualise leadership, like Peter talked about right up front as an essential component of surgery. And that's quite important when we're talking about personal characteristics. It's having an understanding of confidence in technical surgical skills that there you need to go on then and develop some leadership development and develop your approaches to leadership. What was interesting in the review is that leadership was more effective when somebody recognised or perceived that they had a deficit. 
And that deficit-based model may be because they believed themselves they had deficits in their leadership practice, but also when they receive feedback from colleagues who may be suggested this is an area where they could go and show more improvement. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost they had to be quite humble, perhaps, to um, to get the most out of the uh, out of the training. Yeah. Um, Peter, what advice would you give to um, to other surgeons about when to embark on training and how to approach it? So, my advice as to when to embark on leadership training should be as soon as possible. We talk about surgeons, but there's no reason why this should not begin much earlier in your career. And for me, I think medical students should be taught leadership training. It's not something that's really on the curriculum that's addressed. So I think that would be well worth considering and a positive benefit for everyone. Perhaps you could argue that the earlier you start it, in some ways it may be easier because you can, as a medical student, discuss it amongst your peers. But fundamentally, starting early and continuing throughout your career is going to benefit you, your juniors, and and probably also your seniors as well. We need to get across a culture of, of leadership and leadership training, and it's not on the radar as much as it should be. Thank you. So, Amy, you found that the final pillar of high quality surgical leadership training was the atmosphere in the training environment and the context in which the surgeon goes on to apply their learning. Could you say a little about why atmosphere and context are so important? So I think atmosphere, it was fundamental to effective leadership training, really. It sort of underpinned the other two elements. It was important for both how leadership training is delivered, but also when we think about the receptive context of that training. So you can imagine if somebody goes under a period of leadership development, if they cannot then go and do what they have learned in practice, it's there's a disconnect between that. So the atmosphere in which leadership is taught and delivered needs to be supportive of that. But I think Touching on what Peter just said, when we think about atmosphere, it brings in a bigger discussion about organisational culture. And we touched on that briefly in the review, is that, you know, people need to be able to be able to speak up, to be heard, to be listened to. And that within training, like I mentioned earlier, one size doesn't fit all. So ensuring that you create an atmosphere where difference is accepted is important to making these types of development programs effective. Thank you, Amy. And Peter, how can a surgical leader foster a speak-up culture and a positive atmosphere? It, it's, you know, let, let's take an example of an operating theatre, which is teamwork. There's a consultant surgeon there, but there's any mem- members of the team, and it's about making everybody feel part of that team and everybody having an important contribution to the success of that operation. Let's look at some examples. So when we're operating on the head, as I do, and the tumor's on the left side or the right side, we look at the scan and we have to be absolutely sure that we're operating on the correct side. And it's often very valuable to ask junior members of that team to look at the scan with you confirm we're on the right side because then they feel really important as a part of that decision-making process. Another example, the WHO checklist, when we check 
the patient the procedure at the beginning of the operation that everybody is happy and everybody feels able to speak up at that moment about what we're going to do. And fundamentally, for me, it's making everybody feel that they have an equal contribution. When JFK went to visit NASA, he asked the cleaner, what is her job? The cleaner said, my job is to put a man on the moon. At Old Trafford, the cleaner, when Alex Ferguson said, my job as the cleaner is to win the Premier League. So it's the job of everybody at whatever level they are in that room to deliver a successful operation. It's not just about the surgery. It's about the surgeon and the team. And that's where the leadership comes in. This operation would not happen without everybody. So I think that's, if you can get that across, then it really does encourage this speak up culture. Because if people feel they're part of a team, they'll be prepared to speak up. And I've been very grateful on many occasions where relatively junior people have said something. And it's really important to give them the the space and the time to, to speak up. Thank you. Amy, a lot of previous work has been on individual leadership rather than team leadership. Um, I just wondered if you could outline what the difference is and why training as a team might be an effective way of improving leadership. You are right. Nearly all the investment we have at the minute in leadership within the health service, within training surgeons, is looking at training that individual person. And there's a real distinction that needs to be made about leaders being that heroic person at the top and the process of leadership, which, as Peter just hinted to, is a collective, a collaborative and a distributed activity across a surgical team. So we need to move away from thinking about investing in the person and instead we're investing, when we talk about leadership development, in a group of people who are delivering surgery for patients. It is really important to, to state again that surgery is not conducted in isolation. So why do we train leadership in isolation? I think that's a really fundamental point. And when we're commissioning these types of activities, that we think about who is really benefiting from them. So, Peter, in in practice, would team training bring particular benefits if you have experience of it, or or would you see it posing challenges practically? No, I think that pendulum is very heavily in favour of of team training because it'll help us understand each other and the challenges that both the leader and people who are being led have to face. So, for me, team training will help in terms of more clearly defining roles and responsibilities setting objectives, fundamentally streamlining care, but also I think it'll help with managing conflict. I think if we're all learning together and we can see the challenges that that each of us face, it's it's probably more valuable than doing it individually. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, um, we can move on to our take-home messages. I'm wondering, Peter, first of all, what advice would you give to somebody entering surgical training um, to make sure they get the most benefit from it? So my advice would be for us all to lobby to get more leadership training. But it doesn't need to be formal. Look at role models, look at people who are good at it and learn from them. You may well be learning. And having leadership training without realising it, that may sound a bit 
crazy, but there are good leaders out there and they can be a really good role model. So I would, I would certainly advocate that. The formal methods of feedback are important, but why don't we at the end of every operation just say to one another, what went well, what could we do differently next time? Maybe that should be a formal part of the operation where we actually talk to each other about that as, as, a, as a formal step. And that's not something that's, it's done. But if there's some way that we could really encourage people to do that for every interaction, that, that would be really helpful. Thank you. Amy, if you could change one thing about leadership training in the UK for surgeons, what would it be? It would fundamentally be what we're doing at the moment is to try and move it down the pipeline of surgical training. So people right from the beginning recognise that leadership and responsibility for leadership across a group is essential to becoming both a good surgeon, but also a surgical leader. I think you can be an outstanding surgeon and you can achieve excellent outcomes for patients, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're an excellent surgical leader or an excellent surgical educator. So these are discrete development activities that need to be honed and practiced within services. That'd be one thing I'd love to change. <laughs> Any final thoughts, Peter? I think what Amy said is really important. There are some amazing surgeons and very good surgery is done, but nobody lasts forever. So as critical as performing your individual practice to the highest of standards, we have a duty to train the next generation of surgeons, both in terms of their clinical practice, but also helping them develop their leadership skills to pass on to others. That's a strong message to end this podcast. Thank you, Peter. We have discussed the essential elements of effective training. Feedback that is timely, repeated, consistent and constructive. Training that is tailored to the personal characteristics of the surgeon according to their specialty and stage in their career. And a positive atmosphere for training with opportunities afterwards for the surgical leader to apply their learning within a supportive working environment. Innovations to look out for are training for the whole team, not just for the individual, and training that starts earlier, even at medical school. This is an episode of the NIHR podcast. Huge thanks to Amy Grove and Peter Hutchinson for joining me today. I'm Helen Saul and thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts or comments on this or any other episodes, please contact us at evidence at nihr.ac.uk or via our channel on X, that's at NIHR Evidence. And do visit our website, which is evidence.nihr.ac.uk.